0: The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries.
1: This is The Nonprofit Hour, brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change. I'm Jason Dennington. As we enter the holiday season and 2015 is winding down, we're starting to think about resolutions for the next year. For some, that might be looking to make a career change. And for many in the Oregon nonprofit community, that could mean scanning the postings on MaxList. MaxList started in 2001 as a simple email thread for sharing job postings among a few dozen people and has since grown to encompass a website, blog, networking events, and NAO-specific job board an ebook, and now even a regular podcast. From its humble beginnings, it now serves over 20,000 subscribers to the email list alone. On today's show, we are joined by Mac Pritchard, the founder of MaxList, talking with Phil Bussey about the history of MaxList, the role it fills in the local nonprofit sector, and job search and hiring strategies for both job seekers and employers to ensure that they both find the best fit for lasting success. In the second half of the show, we will hear an earlier interview that we are listening to in honor of the UN-Paris Climate Change Conference and the landmark accord that they agreed upon this past Saturday. The Craig Law Center was founded in the summer of 2001 with a primary purpose of building the capacity of many dedicated individuals and organizations striving to create positive change. Their lawyers provide clients with legal solutions for local and regional groups that are fighting for effective change and are tackling sizable litigation challenges against well-heeled corporations who can afford to hire teams of attorneys. Phil Bussey and Jenny Logan spoke to Ralph Blomers, co-executive director and staff attorney from Crag Law, about its founding and ongoing mission to help protect the environment and natural resources of our state. But first, we have another segment in our series of profiles of this year's Skidmore Prize winners. A few weeks back, you heard our interview with Nick Johnson telling us about Willamette Week's Give Guide. The Give Guide profiles 143 nonprofit organizations in the Portland area and through the end of the year, provides a one-stop location for researching and donating to the causes that they work on. You can find out more about the Give Guide at giveguide.org. The Give Guide also celebrates the work of four outstanding staffers from nonprofits who go above and beyond in their work through the award of the Skidmore Prize. Each week, we've been giving you a profile of one of these Skidmore Prize winners, and today we meet Rebecca Burel of the Right Brain Initiative. We'll first hear a short talk that Phil Bussey had with her before listening to her acceptance speech from the Give Guide's launch party at Revolution Hall on November 3rd.
2: Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And so the Right Brain Initiative, uh, tell us what that does.
3: So we are a program that is systemically building the arts into the public school system. So we partner with school districts to help schools and help teachers integrate the arts with other subjects so children can begin to learn about math and science and reading and history while at the same time they're learning about movement and music and visual art. So, um, they're learning, they're finding new pathways to understand the material that they're expected to know, and they're able to learn to think creatively and critically.
2: Can, can we take just a little bit of a step back then? And so, I mean, Portland Public Schools has notoriously lost funding for the arts and for music education. Um, is that where this program came out of, or did you pre exist?
3: So, um, we actually were launched in 2008, so we are a relatively new program looking to definitely fill gaps that exist within our local public school system. So it was the community coming together, um, public sector, the private sector, trying to figure out what they could do to pull resources to meet a community need.
2: And how are how are the teachers finding you? Or are you going to the schools and offering your services? How does that relationship work?
3: So the relationship is first with the school district. So again, we partner with them. Uh, to identify schools that would be great partners for the program. The school districts invest $15 per child. We, of course, match that $15 with uh, about three or fourfold with other funding streams. Um, And then schools become slowly introduced to some of our concepts in arts integration. They go through trainings. They engage in sample residencies with our professional teaching artists. So they they work to build and design uh, together uh, programs in the classroom that integrate the arts with other subjects.
2: I mean, it sounds sounds like fun. Like, it sounds like every school would want to have you guys there.
3: It is really fun, and it's really... um, I think we have to remind people sometimes too that yes it helps kids understand the joy of learning but it also is real learning so we're actually helping kids understand the world in a new kind of way so you know for kids that maybe don't understand math in the way that it's traditionally taught you know through sitting in desks and learning and you know through rote means, they're actually able to learn potentially math by moving their bodies. So we're providing new and legitimate access points to understanding for kids who learn in different ways.
2: And and uh, did you go through the Portland school system or, or can you talk a little bit about, was there a class that really inspired you when you were in elementary or middle school that somehow sparked some uh, artistic ideas in your head?
3: Uh, you know, I did grow up through the Portland Public Schools. Um, I grew up in Northeast Portland, so I was in PPS all the way. Uh, you know, I I think, uh, for the most part, at least in elementary school, I had to get my arts learning through outside um, the school day. So I was, you know, able to get enough scholarships to study dance and I was able to do things because I had supportive parents, um, things that I know not every kid gets to do. So I think, um, you know, I was still in elementary school when budget cuts really started to become an issue. Um, so I definitely feel like I I felt, um, the, the decline.
2: And how did you find out about the, uh, the Skidmore award or that you are one of the winners? How did you find out?
3: Um, So I, I was well. I've been aware of the Skidmore Prize because we've been uh, involved with the limit we give guide since I started working at Right Brain, and it's kind of our main grassroots fundraiser every year. So it's important to us. Um, I was nominated uh, by one of our volunteers for the Skidmore Prize, and um, Nick, who organizes the the give guide, has a great time making phone calls and playing Santa Claus and. Um, letting people know that they've been nominated and then that they've won. So, um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. He gives you he gives you an exciting phone call. I'll put it that way.
2: Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for all the work that you do, and congratulations. Thank you so much.
4: We named uh, the Skinmore Prize because of the ex- inscription on the Skinmore Fountain in Old Town. If you haven't been there, it shows a quotation by C. S. Wood, which reads. Good citizens are the riches of a city. The Skidmore Prize applicants are truly the riches of our city. Our next winner is Rebecca Burrell. She is the outreach coordinator at Right Brain Initiative. Burrell's advocacy work has helped Right Brain serve 20,000 students from 63 Portland metro area schools in seven districts and three counties. Rebecca's prize is generous, generously sponsored by Davis Wright Tremaine. Please welcome Rebecca and Paul from Davis Wright Tremaine, who will present her award. Rebecca, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, thanks.
3: When Nick called me to tell me that I had won this award, I told him that I thought I needed a little bit more time to process that information. I think it's finally sunk in. <laughs> Thank you so much to the Willamette Week um, for this incredible award. I Definitely don't work in isolation, so I want to start off by providing a few additional thank yous to folks who I feel have helped me along the way. I want to thank my colleagues at Right Brain, who are obviously all sitting over in that section. (laughs) Um, They inspire and challenge me to be better on a daily basis. I want to thank the many, many volunteers and community partners who blow me away every time they continue to show up to support this work. And without whom I think our program would cease to function. I wanna thank my husband Kevin, who puts up with all the weird hours that I work and has bailed me out of so, so many nonprofit emergencies. He's our number one most consistent volunteer. And I wanna thank Marna Stalkup, my manager of nearly six years, who has always given me the space and the trust to lead. She has allowed me to be creative, to run with new ideas, and ultimately she has given me the space to fail, which is a freedom that I think everyone who works in the nonprofit field, hell, everyone who works in every field needs to have the freedom to fail and to make mistakes. I think it's crucial for all of us to do our very best work, and I don't take that for granted. Now I want to talk a little bit about the Right Brain Initiative, the program that I am so lucky to work for. Right Brain partners with our local school systems to make the arts a fundamental part of education. We currently serve 25,000 kindergarten through eighth grade students, but we have a really big and bold goal of serving every child in the Portland metro area by helping teachers transform their classrooms into creative laboratories and warehouses for our discovery. We help students connect art and music and movement with subjects like math and science and history. This helps kids make new connections to school curriculum in new and relevant ways. In any context, and education is no different, it's easy to think of the arts as simply cute or nice, but I want to take a moment to honor the power of creativity to change communities and to change lives. Holler if you agree. (laughs) I work for the Right Brain Initiative because I've now seen with my own eyes that when delivered thoughtfully to kids, the arts don't just help students learn to master new instruments or new mediums, but it can actually help them learn to think and it can help them learn to interpret the world. I believe that if we can invest in all children, regardless of what neighborhood they live in or what language they speak, and this is what Right Brain is actually trying to do, if through the arts we can give kids the freedom to personalize their education, to discover what they're curious about, to discover what moves them in this wild planet that we live on, if through the arts we can help make school a safe and vibrant place for all children, it could inspire a sea change. If we can really reach all kids, and all schools in this way, and I hope you will join me in this effort. The arts can do no less than build us a better and more equitable Portland.
1: Thank you. And now on to today's featured interview with Mac Pritchard of Max List. Here's Phil bussey
2: this is Phil Bossey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes nonprofit hour. I'm really—we have a, a very interesting guest today, Mac Pritchard, who has both MaxList and then Pritchard Communications. And let's—I want to start talking about MaxList, which is really a powerhouse and a focal point uh, for staffing nonprofits. And why, Mac? Why don't you just—why don't you just start by telling us? How did this come about? Did you see a need and jump into it, or was this a mistake? Well, it's a 14-year overnight
5: success, Phil. We <laughs> uh, we attract a, a monthly audience, we're very proud of this, of about 80,000 people. Uh, but we began very modestly. I uh, had the good fortune, while though living in Portland, uh, to work in Salem for a number of years in government and politics there. And when I took a position at Portland State in 2001, I wanted to stay in touch with my old colleagues down in Salem. I didn't know if I'd ever go back, and, but I wanted to stay on people's radar screen. And the way I did that was I put together a simple list of a few dozen names of people I wanted to remain connected with, and I started forwarding job postings. And that's how it began. Years went by, uh, and the list grew very slowly and modestly. But over the years, I heard from people who wanted to be on the list and then from employers who uh, asked me to share postings. And, uh, and when I started, you know, we all get job postings. We, we all get that email that says, Hey, if you hear of anybody, please pass this along. And that's how it began. It took off. However, when we turned it into a weekly newsletter and then uh, that was about uh, seven years ago. And then as we've added new platforms, it's grown and grown.
2: And I would think that one of the, the the difficulties of a good problem to have of growing is that once you've gone past your initial initial circle of friends mm-hmm. and once you stopped really curating uh, the job postings that you were you were going in and it became a you know a a place where people could buy a posting mm-hmm. that was there a concern that as quantity went up that quality might go down? The magic
5: of the list is connection, and it's grown entirely by word of mouth. So we've never advertised. uh, We've never done sales. Uh, Look, uh, candidly, we did try sales calls for a few weeks, and it it was a disaster. And it taught us an important lesson, uh, which is an old one that employers know and job seekers uh, learn pretty quickly, I think. And it's this. People hire people they know, or they hire people uh, who are recommended to them by people they trust. And that's the foundation of the list because people get on the list by word of mouth. So you tell a friend about it, uh, the friend trusts you, uh, they sign up, and they see the information they're getting is valuable. They tell another friend and so forth. And, in, and employers come to the list in the same way, uh, either because they've been job seekers themselves or someone in their organization says, you should post on this list. So it's to your original question um it's very much a community and it's uh and it is self-curated and it's uh it's it's self-growing
2: if you could go back to when you've you know uh 10 plus years ago and give yourself some advice uh about how to launch max list how what would that be
5: recognize i
2: i it's a great question um
5: for a long time, I didn't understand the value of what I was providing the benefit that people were getting from the list and I think that's an important lesson not only for someone who's managing an online community to to uh, to learn but for job seekers as well, because often when people do their their searches uh, they see the, the competition and they think it's uh, they don't do as good as job as they might in recognizing the value they offer to employers. So, um, I, so the basic lesson, I think, would be to to if, uh, recognize if you're providing something that offers a benefit, it's going to be valuable and people will want it.
2: Can, can you, uh, I know it's different for each uh, person and each person looking for a job, but are there sort of a top three list of most attractive professional skills? uh i think it depends i i think
5: that uh it it really depends on the occupation and i think what employers are looking for from applicants most fundamentally is what can you do to help that employer and what employers tell us uh about interviews that frustrate them is when a a job seeker talks about the benefits of the position to them. This will be great because uh, it will help me pursue my interests in this field. Uh, I I support your mission. Uh, Your office is conveniently located. Maybe they don't say that, but um, and those are all important reasons that somebody should pursue a job, but you want to lead with the be- with the benefits that you offer a uh, an organization where you want to work because ultimately the employer is what is thinking about the pile of work that is is growing the problems they got to get solved and if you can understand those problems uh, as a job seeker and show demonstrate either through experience or through presentations and interviews that you can address and solve those problems you will move to the front of the
2: of the line and and. And Max list, is is it all nonprofits? It's no. not, Phil.
5: It's uh, private and, and nonprofit employers. And again, the positions come to us by word of mouth. And so as the list, as the community has grown, uh, the, the number and the variety of positions has grown. They are, for the most part, professional jobs. Uh, they require uh, uh, usually a college degree or a certain amount of education. Uh, they are focused in Oregon. Uh, our biggest market is Portland, which is, is a reflection of the state's economy. But we do re- get jobs from all of, across the state.
2: And I think it's interesting. To, I mean, it, it is a very, um, even though it's a large group of people that that are using your list to find jobs or to market jobs, it's also is a fairly specific group of people. And again, they're not all working in nonprofits, but mm-hmm. A lot of these people are not just looking for a paycheck, they're looking for meaningful jobs exactly. Uh, does that, that's, that's a different creature yeah than, than you know if uh, you know Intel was searching for somebody, um,
5: Well, I think everybody wants to find meaning in their work, whether it's a professional position or uh, one that doesn't require a lot of education. And that meaning can come in, in many different ways. Uh, you know, the community, the, the workplace can be uh, just um, knowing how your work is making a difference in somebody's life. So it's not, a, it's not something that's limited just to the, the white-collar occupations.
2: This is Phil Bassi. It's the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. I am speaking with Mac Pritchard, who runs both MaxList and Pritchard Communications. You brought some music in. I did, so the first song I'd
5: like to share is one of my favorites uh, from my grade school days. It's Tennessee Ernie Ford singing 16 Tons. And the reason I'd like to share this is uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful song, but it portrays the way work doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a trap. It doesn't have to be drudgery. Uh, there, you can avoid that. And, and, and I know we'll talk more about how to make that happen. Great
1: choice.
0: Some
6: people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load sixteen tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Ah to the company store
2: That was 16 Tons. What a great song to listen to during the work day. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with Mac Pritchard. Uh, we are speaking about one of his services, Mac's List, which is a Uh, Incredibly robust uh, job posting uh, newsletter, as well as other avenues. And, you know, I I have not really been looking for a job for a number of years. (laughs) However, I still get the list and I read it every week because it uh, it is, there's a narrative almost to it in that I can see what organizations are growing. Who's changing? Maybe what executive directors are moving on. It's it, there's a certain thrill to reading max list. Is is is? Am I alone in that? You're not. Uh, we know from
5: our work in the community. We have quarterly events for for job seekers. Uh, uh, we do an annual survey. Uh, we get thousands of responses. Uh, but we know from this, Phil, that more than two thirds of our readers are are employed and they're what uh, recruiters call uh, passively looking. And I think your interest in 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 tracking positions is a reflection of the fact that it is a community. and uh, the the number of lists jobs on the uh, typical uh, on on the blog uh, I'm sorry, the number of jobs on the website at a t- typical times a few hundred. Uh, and that's that is a large number, but it's also important to remember that, according to the Oregon Employment Department, about eighty thousand jobs are posted online every month. So we have a small fraction of that. Um, and the, but the, the interest that you and other readers have in those positions that we do have is a reflection that we've grown organically.
2: And I think there's, there's a certain, uh, aesthetic to it that is, uh, it is cleaner and flashier than Craigslist, but there is still a certain aesthetic to it that falls that in that there, there's, there's no pop-up ads, there's no flashing lights, uh, there is a nice... Simplicity to to the look, and, and I assume that's intentional.
5: It is. It reflects. We try to create a, a website that uh, reflects our values at MaxList, and and the kind of place that uh, we would want to spend time. My my team and I. Yeah.
2: And so so MaxList again started as a, as a newsletter, sort of as a, a as a project uh, for for you. It's grown into a, a, a big deal. Uh, it's it's a website. There's a book, and you have recently started a podcast, uh, find, find Your Dream Job. We have,
5: and there's also a blog that has several posts a week. And the reason we provide all this information is because looking at job boards when you are actively looking for work is one important strategy, but it's not the only way to find work. Uh, in fact, there are estimates out there that as many as 80% of jobs are are never advertised. They don't appear on MaxList, Monster.com, Craigslist, anywhere, uh, even in old-fashioned newspapers. And the, and the reason that is so, it gets back to the point you and I were talking about at the start of the show, people fill jobs by word of mouth. Not because there's a conspiracy, but it's just a reflection of human nature, There that connection. You want to reach out to people you trust or know. So... Uh, through the blog, through the book, and now through a weekly podcast, we provide information about how to look for work uh, outside of job boards. And that often involves networking, volunteering, uh, and most importantly, getting clear about your goals. Because if most jobs are filled by word of mouth, 80%, if you're doing, for example, uh, if you're doing a job search, you probably shouldn't be spending 100% of your time looking at job boards, no matter how good they might be. You need to get out in the community and talk to others. And that looking for work is a skill that most schools don't teach. Uh, you can go by, there are great career centers and uh, that that can offer coaching, And but most people get through university or college without uh, learning those skills. And then they... So their first instin- instinct is to look at job boards. But what do they do after they've scanned all the boards? And there's plenty they can do. They, they need to find out, need to learn often how to do it.
2: And, I mean, clearly, uh, Max List and, and your work here has given you a lot of insights into what the labor force is and the type of person yeah. that's working in, in Portland. Um, uh, what percentage of that is, is Portlandia? type of you know, type of uh, person going on what uh, is there a personality type that you can you can say is out there in the job force that feels unique to Portland
5: I Portland is uh, is a wonderful place I think there are a lot of different personalities out there uh, and I think you would find them in most cities I I want to step back though and talk about why I feel passionate about helping people learn the skills to find work uh, it it's it comes in part, in large part from my own personal experience because I came out of college. I had uh, uh, several great jobs that uh, uh, I basically fell into. And then in my mid-20s, I got stuck. I was laid off, and I had a long period of unemployment. And I didn't know what to do other than to pick up the paper every Sunday and look at the ads and send out resumes. And then after I did that on Monday morning, it, it was a long week. Um, and so I share this story because uh, that happened to me not once but twice. and but I got out of those holes and found great jobs. and i've I've had a very rewarding career uh, that I'm grateful for, but i I got out of those holes because I learned how to look for work, how to network, how to do informational interviews, how to stay in touch with my contacts. and uh, and so i I get very excited about helping people other people learn that too. Not only so they can find a job, but they can find rewarding, meaningful work, and and think about not just the next job, but how they can have a career that can make a difference. And that's uh, that's what drives us at MaxList. It's not just a job board, though. That's important. Uh, it's we're we're trying to teach people how they can have
2: uh, great careers. And the other side of the the other part of the equation is also making a good hire. Right. And how much, uh, how much is Max List involved in that? We've been talking about it's a source for people looking for jobs, yeah. But it's also a source for people that are hiring and they're looking to hire quality or the right match, right? How how much? Um, well, what, what what insights do you have in terms of people making bad hires? Are there are there common mistakes that people make? There are, and I've been an employer now uh,
5: since. Uh, 2007, and before that, I was a manager in public agencies and nonprofits, and uh, I've made some great hires. Um, uh, I've worked with some very talented people who've had uh, very distinguished careers. Um, I've also made I, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of mistakes along the way, and but I think uh, employers know that when they're filling a position, uh, that the reason why employers uh, uh, fill jobs by word of mouth is because they know they'll get good results by reaching out to people whose work they know and who or people they've had direct experience with. So I imagine my list, your listeners are thinking, okay, well, if I've never worked with anyone, how am I going to get a job with uh, that organization? And it doesn't have to be a str- uh, that strong a connection. Often. If you've had a, uh, 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 you know somebody because you served on a committee together or you've attended the same social events or you've been involved in a professional organization um, you'll, or you move in the same professional circles or you've met through an informational interview, that can make a huge difference. And if there's a pile of 100 app uh, resumes for a position, if you've got a connection that it's allowed you to demonstrate uh, that. You've got the skills and uh, to, to do the job, and there's some kind of relationship there. That's a huge advantage, and you can do that in a thoughtful, strategic way.
2: And then, what what about after making the hire? I, I, do you see MaxList as as just the matchmaker, and then your job is done, or what? What responsibilities do you feel like MaxList has to to uh, that that continued relationship between the uh, the the boss and the employee? Well, again,
5: helping people learn uh, the skills they need to not only find great work but manage their career uh, is, I think, the difference that makes for employers is they're going to uh, attract uh, employees who know what they want. And when people are clear about their goals, uh, when the applicant knows where she or he wants to be and the employer is clear about what they're looking for, that's going to lead to a, a productive, rewarding relationship for for both parties, and so I uh, we we help uh, job seekers identify uh, where they want to be by providing information about goal setting, informational interviews, and, and strategies and tactics can that can help them get clear about where they want to be. What I, I I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Phil. I've I've talked to people who have. Um, I haven't personally but some you know people will tell me they'll start a job and it uh they took it because they just they needed a job and uh it, they realize it's not a good fit and if it and and often they leave and that is not a good situation for either the the employee or the employer because it's uh you're investing a lot when you sign up with an organization and if you um if it's not a good fit you have to start all over again, and, uh, and that can be tough.
2: This is Phil Bassi for the Nonprofit Hour. I am speaking to Mac Pritchard with MaxList, as well as with Pritchard Communication, and we're talking about hiring and staffing of, of nonprofits, as well as other organizations around, around Portland. you have another musical suggestion? I do. Uh, Dolly Parton in 9 to 5. Perfect song. Thank you that was of course Dolly Parton her song 9 to 5 did, do do you do you know mac did that come before or after or simultaneously with the movie i'm so ancient phil i actually saw that movie in first release
5: and it was uh, the movie came the song came out at the same time as the movie and
2: I don't know if you've seen it. do you? I, I know the gist of it and I've, I, I was a kid and I don't think I was allowed quite to go see that movie. Yeah, it, uh, it's about three
5: women. They're played by Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and Dolly Parton and they're in an office and there's um, a terrible boss. He's incompetent and uh, played by Dabney Coleman. and the, they make him look good and there's but they're so frustrated by uh, his poor leadership. That it's a comedy that uh, they they kidnap him uh, and they take over the office and they make the place hum and they introduce all these ideas that make employees more productive like flex time and job sharing. Um, so it's a comedy, uh, but it's it's a comedy with a hopeful message.
4: Stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving They just use your
2: There are so many quality movies about bad bosses, are there not? Yeah, there are. I think that is indicative of of uh, how some people are suffering nine to five. Uh, Mac, when when you started this, I mean, or let me let me phrase it differently. How surprised are you that that Max list has become an institution? Well, it, uh, it's I'm am gratified by
5: the audience that that comes, and and what I've tried to do in my career is provide. Services that make a difference that help people. And I do that through, I know we'll talk about Pritchard communications later, but through uh, public relations work to support social change. And Maxlist really reflects uh, a fundamental value for me, which is to choose work that makes a difference in my community or on issues I care about. And uh, so being of service to others is important to me personally and and uh it's a huge value at, at, at max list is what drives what we do
2: mac thank you so much for talking to us today about max this is phil bussey and it's been the nonprofit hour for social change and just just as a, a wrap-up for this part uh just as a wrap-up uh where where can people how can people get if they're not already on max how do they how do they sign up Visit our website.
5: We have a newsletter that comes out every Tuesday with more than 100 jobs. It's free, and you can find a sign-up box at the, new, at, the, at the website. There's a Thursday newsletter that contains the, the three to four blog posts we publish every week, and, and that's free as well. And we've just launched a weekly podcast. It, it, uh, we add a new episode every Wednesday morning. Uh, and we're, uh, this, in fact, is our launch week. We're very uh, proud and, and humbled that uh, we're, we're trending at number six on the iTunes career chart in the U.S.
2: Congratulations for that. And thank you for all the, the great work that you've done and all the jobs that you've, uh, you've helped uh, uh, become a matchmaker for. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: If you're just tuning in, we were listening to Phil Bussey speaking with Mac Pritchard of MaxList. I'm Jason Dennington, and this is the Nonprofit Hour Show on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change. If you'd like to find out more about the Media Institute's programs, you can visit mediamakingchange.org. And as always, if you have any suggestions for an organization that you think our listeners should hear about, you can let me know via email to jason.dennington at xray.fm. Next up, we have an interview in honor of the just-completed Paris Climate Change Conference, in which we'll be speaking to Ralph Blomers from the Crag Law Center. Here's Phil Bussey and Jenny Logan. Morning, Jenny. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Phil. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. So we are, we are here today
2: with the nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm Phil Bussey and my co-host...
7: Jenny Logan, and we're sitting here with Ralph. Bloomer is from Craig Law Center.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And what, what is it in a, in a nutshell that the Craig Law Center does?
0: Well, basically, um, we set up uh, Craig in 2001 to provide access to justice to community groups, environmental groups um, for free or as close to free as possible. So think of it as legal aid for the environment. Um, we represent uh, Inupiat Eskimos on the north slope of Alaska taking on shell oil, keeping shell out of their subsistence fishing territory, uh, moving down into Washington state, into Oregon. Most of our work is in Washington and Oregon. We work on wilderness protection, uh, protecting clean water, clean drinking water, enforcing you know, our nation's bedrock environmental laws against uh, polluters, against rogue government agencies. So essentially, it's a lot of litigation work, a lot of taking people to task in court, um, in state and federal court and appellate work. We've had some work that's gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court as well that sets precedent. But a lot of it's really you know, place-based conservation for places that we here in Portland you know, go to love, like Mount Hood, the north side of Mount Hood. One of our biggest projects was protecting the north side of Mount Hood. I um, mean, if we
2: can sort of structure the narrative. If, if the 80s, it was the logging companies and the, the, the commercial fisheries that were, were the quote-unquote villains, it sounds like you're, you're dealing more with governmental agencies now and corporations.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's really, the fun- our work is a, really a function of people coming to us and saying, we need help with this. Mm-hmm. This is a threat to our community. What can we do? So coal trains in the gorge. Mm-hmm. There's a broad coalition of people, and that issue transcends not just the impact of, you know, to us here, but also the impact globally in terms of carbon pollution and and climate change. So, so- you know. It's, do
7: most? Sorry, go ahead. No. Sorry. So, do most of your cases come to you from just concerned citizen groups, or do you do outreach or education to get to get cases? Or
0: we um, have more work than we can take on, and it's primarily word of mouth. I think that you know when we first started, Craig, Chris, and I were um, refugees from a big corporate law firm, and uh, we jumped ship and left. Um, you know, d- ditch the whole golden handcuffs, in a, you know, for um, doing something that we thought needed to be done to address what we thought were serious imbalances in the system in terms of access to justice. As you know, kind of corny as that sounds, really, you know, balancing the scales. That's really what we were we were looking to do. And in the in the first you know month or two, we went on a roadshow and went around and said, "Here we are. Here's who we are. Here's who we where we worked. And do you need any help with anything?" So we did do that. But at this point, you know, the phone rings and it's we heard about you from uh, a farmer friend of ours who you helped, you know, in Hood River. Can you help us in Benton County, you know, protect um, the same farmland and forest land you were protecting in Hood River County? So people, you know, there's networks and people know what we do. We have a website which anyone can look up. For you know, environmental lawyers, and you might get a corporate environmental lawyer when you do that as a Google search term. But you'll get us as well if you right. if you look that up. And so people call us, and we really don't do any other advertising other than just having a website. You
7: just you get enough business coming to you already. Word are yeah. enough.
2: And does that mean that the world's not saved yet?
0: Um, not all little. We're we are just trying to save some little parts of the world here, Phil. Not the entire world. I'm trying to be uh, modest about it, but. Yes, there's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of work we're not doing. And, you know, this year we sort of initiated a fellowship program because part of our mission is training the next generation. Um, And we have two people straight out of law school who are working with us um, and, and getting the skills that they need to be able to go out into the job market after, you know, they've worked with us. And we'd love to be able to keep them, but we need we need more people. we We don't really have enough to address all the needs and all the calls that we get.
7: This is a nonprofit hour, and we're here with Ralph from Craig Law Center. And Ralph, you told us um, about what the Law Center does, but i'm I'm curious to see more about your personal story, how you got involved. You said you were a corporate lawyer, and mm-hmm. you ended up making a pretty big transition. So can you talk about that?
0: Well, you know, you trace the origins back of what you do. I don't think you, when you make decisions in life, you don't always know exactly what the reasons are. And I think it, it was um, a couple years ago when the dam came out on the White Salmon River, when it was get, being blown up, and I was sitting there on the, on the banks of the river celebrating with a bunch of my clients, which were primarily um, older, gray-haired people that had been working to protect that river from getting a bunch of dams on it. And I looked at them and I thought, wow, this really brings me back to why, this, why I thought that I could do something and make a difference. And it, and it started with having grown up on a farm in Virginia and having to lose that farm and seeing how my mom uh, decided to sell it and, and not sell it for the highest profit, but sell it to someone who would continue what we had started there. And that was, she sold it to a group of um, Cistercian nuns and they still run the cheese farm there. And she got the bug and the bug of preserving land. And she convinced a lot of people around there to put conservation easements. And you go back to that part of Virginia and it's still, it's beautiful. It's not like other parts that have now been, you know, subdivided or strip Um, mauled. And I think that was one of the, you know, things that I traced back that started back way before I went to law school or even thought I would go to law school Law school was really, for me, a way to add some value to me, to give me some tools to be able to do something. Exactly what that was, I didn't know. Um, I went, I, I knew that I liked the outdoors, um, and that wasn't a vague notion. I mean, I really did like it, but what I would do about it and that I would see you know, what I saw in terms of what the world needed. I had a couple professors in college that I would say somewhat radicalized me to the real American history of um, the imbalances of power. And, you know, I just went to law school to sort of get some tools and had some good influences there and knew that I wanted to do environmental work. But the path into that is difficult. The path right. now is difficult for people out of school, into a job. And
7: the, the and path so, is
2: difficult because there's not there's not necessarily money there or that third I mean, because before you were saying there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of need for this. Uh, so why why is there not uh, why is the path difficult?
0: I think the bat- path is difficult because school is expensive because there's not a lot of money in public interest work mm-hmm. um, and you have to be prepared to make some, it, you can call them sacrifices, but I like to think of it as adjustments in your lifestyle because if it's sacrifices, I think it's too, too big for people to take on. But really, frankly, in terms of how you live and, you know, I said we're supported by the community, but we're also supported by people who are prepared to work for pretty much not a lot of money um, and that's part of it. Um, so, you know, I graduated, I had the opportunity to go work at a big corporate firm, which was great experience to see, you know, um, to see how that operated. I mean, to be the man, you got to know the man. Um, so, you know, Chris and I met there and we planned our escape. Um, and you know, we didn't burn any bridges with that, with, with the people there. Um, but we just felt that we had a different calling to do, to do something else And um, we just left and and worked for free for about a year and a half, two years while we built um, Crag up. And we started winning cases. And it was kind of the right time in a way because uh, Bush was in office and he was shredding, trying to shred our nation's environmental laws with a variety of regulatory changes. And we were in the thick of fighting that um, for clients. And so it 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 was an important time for us to have made that move. And I think... You know, our success is a combination of um, the communities that we support being really committed. When we take cases, we really look for clients that are really, you know, going to spend the time to um, help us with the work. So, like the communities in Hood River, they turn out, um, they they vote, they uh, try to influence the decision makers, and they'll do you know the work to get you the documents that you need to bring these cases. And so, it's really the f- it's all about helping the community. And I think that's sort of that seed corn started with sort of seeing what happened to the, to the family farm back in Virginia and wanting to continue that.
2: Do you remember that day that, that you left the, uh, the big firm, which we don't need to name uh, if you don't want to? Uh, do you remember that day and, and the, what, what feelings you were going through?
0: I definitely remember um, when I announced it. And how people responded, and how different people responded differently, and what was important to them. Um, some people would close the office door and say, "Oh, this is what I something. I'm so proud of you, and this is something that I always wanted to do. And I wish you all the best. And let me know how much I can how I can help you and support you in doing this."
2: They'd close the office door with you on the correct side of the office door. They close <laughs> invite <laughs> me in. Close the office door. Checking.
0: and share that um, with me. Others would say. Oh, where are you gonna work? And I'd say, out of my house, and they'd go, Oh. And you could see kind of what was important to them was yeah. um, you no know, different than what was important to me. But I, you know, for the most part, um, it was it was straightforward, you know. It I put in three years there, I did corporate securities, venture finance work, raised money for startup companies. It was challenging, exciting work, and I paid off my loans. Mm-hmm. It, that was, you know, big and I was able to take the jump and basically work for free um, to, do, you know, to do this work for a period of time to get it started, and that's what it took.
2: And, and, and then uh, what was your first victory, or what would you consider your first victory?
0: We had a case, the one that I remembered the most distinctly right off the bat was a case we had in federal court in front of just Judge James Redden, who's pretty well known for his work on fisheries and dams. And it was a case related to bull trout, and bull trout are a very temperature-sensitive se- uh, temperature fish. They're mostly just been eliminated on the west side of the Cascades in Oregon, except for two locations, the upper middle fork of the Willamette and the uh, upper sections of the McKenzie River. And we had a case against a bunch of old-growth timber sales in the, high in this watershed that was going to damage the last remaining bull trout habitat. And Chris um, Winter, who also, you know, jumped ship and, and started this with me, and I hitched myself to that bright star, um, you know, we worked on this thing together. He brought the case, and, and I helped him with it, and we were sitting there in the courtroom, and we were, you know, challenging the Fish and Wildlife Service, so you would think we would have to go first. And James Redden, Judge James Redden walked in and said, um, well, normally the plaintiff would have to make their argument first, but you guys have dug, dug such a big hole for the Fish and Wildlife Service. They're going to have to go first and <laughs> oh, see wow. if they can get themselves under out of it. And under the table, I was, you know, pulling my arm like, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, that was a pretty awesome feeling. And we had um, the last old growth timber sh- sales in the Gifford Pinchot Task Force was our next case, excuse me, in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest for the Gifford Pinchot Task Force. We st- pretty much closed the books on the old growth timber sale program in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest for that group. That was our next case. It was five massive old growth timber sales. Um, And then after that, pretty much one of the biggest projects that we've worked on over the last decade, and it's still ongoing, is the effort to protect the north side of Mount Hood. And that started in 2001.
2: And what, what are the threats on the north side of Mount Hood?
0: We got a call from a pear farmer out there that said that the county had traded away the county's, the people's watershed to Mount Hood Meadows to develop a, a destination resort. And can you help us? And we said, well, we'll look at it. And they said, well, we've already talked to a couple lawyers in larger firms, and they said, we have no case. And we'll look at it, we said. So we looked at it, and we challenged the land trade Prevailed in the Oregon Court of Appeals, and that led to a mass, uh, a big settlement process. Um, and we ended up with a wilderness bill that passed, and Obama signed into law in 2009 for 125,000 acres of wilderness on Mount Hood, uh, 85 miles of wild and scenic rivers, and um, a- another land trade to basically trade all the land that Mount Hood Meadows owned on the north side for land in government camp. And that's pending this summer where the land on the north side has to get valued and the land in government camp has to get valued and they'll swap. And then if, if that goes through, then Mount Hood Meadows will be able to develop um, a much smaller piece of land um, in government camp. And then the land on the north side of Mount Hood that's in the watershed that's wild will remain undeveloped. And it's a pretty special that's a major place. victory. Yeah, it's that's a exactly. major victory. And we never expected... Um, when we first started to get such high profile kind of important work, but in, we've had other cases that have taken us all the way to the U S Supreme court. So it's, we just feel very fortunate to be able to, uh, represent people doing this work that, you know, in their local communities. And now there's a lot of work that we're doing Phil on, um, climate and energy, coal trains, liquefied natural gas. Um, things related to our future of our water resources, Nestle bottling water in the gorge. Um, So, you know, the issues um, keep changing and we keep learning about new areas of the law and new areas of, you know, commerce that we, that are affecting our communities. It's hard to point to one thing. We,
2: We are talking with Ralph bloomers, who's a staff attorney for the Craig law center. Uh, Another song that you want to, to play for us?
0: Well, um, I was thinking that uh, to go local with Casey Neal and um, suggest that you play uh, Dancing on the Ashes of Multinational Corporations.
4: Dancing on the Ruins of Multinational Corporations Dancing on the Ruins of Multinational Corporations Ha, 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 ha Say goodbye to plastic and goodbye to cars No more convenience stores, hello to stars No more Wall Street and no more Pentagon Thinking about these things makes me happy We're dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations Dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations Dancing on the ruins of multinational corporations Ha, 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 ha To make haste, if we're going to survive without computer program lines, we're going to have to can pop culture.
2: Uh, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ralph Bloomers, the executive director for the Craig Law Center for joining us. And thank you guys for all the good work that you're doing and, and really helping to uh, conserve uh, land and, and protect the protect the environment that we live in. You have, you have one more thing to say.
4: No, I was just going to say thank you so much for having us and uh, giving us this opportunity to talk about Craig and promote environmental activism. Thanks for
7: being here.
2: Absolutely, and I think we're going to, if I can make a request, we're going to go out with uh, Warren Zevon, send us lawyers, guns, and money.
1: Come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Mac Pritchard of Maxlist and Ralph Blomers of Crag Law Center. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, as well as one of our original hosts, Jenny Logan, KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM, and most of all, to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to have you join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour.